So we're in a series looking at questions that God asks of people in Scripture. And so we've, we've seen a number of them. Really grateful for uh, Mackenzie Matthews. Wasn't she great last week teaching? She just has like so much energy. Always enjoy her, her teaching in here. And Pastor Donnie spoke uh, a few weeks back. But we've been looking at some of these ever going all the way back from like the question to Adam, where are you? to Job and David and and Jesus asking this paralytic man a question. And tonight we're going to look at uh, one of the questions that Jesus asks to a woman who is caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 7, verse 53. And this is, it's printed in your bulletin. If you have a Bible though, you can open it up or turn it on. We'll probably jump around a little bit. So before we get into it, um, there's a, uh, there's an author, a theologian, he was a missionary, a, a, a church guy named Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin uh, was a bishop in India. He spent much of his time there. Brilliant guy, but definitely he was a practitioner as well. He was on the ground doing kind of you know, church work in this community there. And one of his challenges that, that he had was, I'm, I'm talking to these people about this man who died you know, a long time ago, and that his death somehow means something to you, like that there's a connection there. And so he, uh, he, he wrote a book um, entitled Sin and Salvation in which he talked about some of his challenges and struggles as he's trying to say, how do I talk to these people from different culture about this connection to this person from another culture and his death somehow connected to them. There was some meaning. So he talked about these sort of like images he would use. He would say things like, well, imagine if you fell in a well and, and someone gave their life for you, meaning like they jumped down in the well to save you, but in the process, they, they died. And then, you know, he'd say things like, um, but if you're, you know, if you're being attacked by a tiger, apparently that was a thing that went on, because these are his examples, right? Yeah, he goes, a guy going to jump in the well won't help you, right? So like, it's not just that he died for you, but he saved your life. He, he and, and so... He was talking about, like, I need to kind of approach it by, like, all these different angles. And as I was thinking about Leslie Newbegin, as he was talking about, I almost thought of, like, um, you remember, like, the kaleidoscopes? I wish I had thought earlier that I would have, like, brought one. You know what a kaleidoscope is, right? Like, where you look into one end of it, and there's a couple of mirrors in there. And as you turn the sides, all the images that are in there, they're all in there, but these mirrors, like, show you different, them in different formats or different orders, right? Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? And it... It's kind of interesting. I just looked up. I was curious. I'm like, to be honest, I didn't know how to spell kaleidoscope, so I had to like search. I'm like, how do you spell kaleidoscope? And as I as I was searching for it, I pulled. I'm not. I'm a horrible speller. I I, I found the the etymology of the word, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll I'll look at what it means. And the word kaleidoscope comes from three three Greek words, Koine Greek. One is kalos. Kalos means beauty, something that's beautiful. The another word is uh, edas. Which, which means like the form or the shape, kind of like the thing that you're looking at. And then um, uh, the, the third word is skapeo, skapeo, which means to look or examine, to observe. So essentially, a kaleidoscope means to observe the beautiful forms of something to observe the beautiful forms of something. And as, as I was thinking about this idea, now the, the big theological word for what we're talking about here, what Leslie Newbegin was trying to connect with, is this idea of the atonement. Okay, we, we, in theology we talk about the doctrine of the atonement. 
And this is one of, of all of the doctrines out there. If you go take like a theology, systematic theology class, this is the one that like can be the most challenging in the sense of it's like you have to kind of turn the kaleidoscope and look at it from like a hundred different angles because there's so much going on. One statement, like it's like jumping in a well. It's like saving you from a tiger. <laughs> One of those alone doesn't work. You have to like keep turning the kaleidoscope and looking at this. So you have in your bulletin, you've got eight uh, lines there. And these are metaphors that the New Testament authors, as they tried to turn the kaleidoscope on this idea of the atonement, the idea that Jesus' death, somehow he didn't just die for me, but he saved me. Like, what does that mean? How do I understand that? So just fill in these blanks here real quickly before we jump into the text. The New Testament metaphors that describe the mystery of the atonement, one that's used is a law court. A law court. We read in Romans 3.26, Paul's kind of got this turn of the kaleidoscope in mind when he says, uh, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Another turn of the kaleidoscope looking at the atonement is it's the sacrificial altar. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Get rid of the old yeast. Now, that's in their Jewish mind, that's a symbol of corruption that tends to spread, just like yeast spreads through bread or a, or a batch. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new unle a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Third turn of the kaleidoscope is a battlefield. 1 Corinthians 15, we read, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A fourth turn of the kaleidoscope is, it's a prisoner exchange. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's, that's kind of a prisoner word, the, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Fifth turn of the kaleidoscope, it's a slave liberation. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Sixth turn of the kaleidoscope on the atonement comes from wisdom literature. This is probably the most abstract. I've, I gave you a longer section if you want to go back and read. Um, but 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul talks about this idea that um, there's, there's a wisdom in this world, and then there's this deep, deep, almost un... You can't quite even get to it yourself, this deep wisdom that God has, and that's what was going on in the cross there. Number seven... It's the canceling of a bond. Colossians 2.14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away and he's actually nailed it to the cross. And then the eighth and final turn in the kaleidoscope is a triumphal procession. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a, spectacle, a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. As I've, as I've been, the reason I bring this up is as I was reading this passage just in, in, in John chapter 7 and 8, kind of over and over, I do that during the week as I just kind of try to like internalize it. I just read it and think about it and read it some more and read it and, you know, read commentaries and study and read it and think and all that. As I was thinking about it and, and was reflecting on this story, it, it offered me another turn of the kaleidoscope. Not through, not through some observation I had, but through the, the eyes of a woman in this text. And when we get to the end, what I hopefully you will see is that she had a turn of the kaleidoscope that was experiential. You ever notice that experiential knowledge is really different than like just being told something? Like if you sit down in a class and you learn something <laughs> versus if you're actually out somewhere and, you, and, it's, and something happens to you. It's like deeper. She had a turn of the kaleidoscope of what the atonement is in a way that I don't have. So I was trying to like get behind her eyes and see it a little bit here. So let's jump into the text. Before I do that, I have to address there's a textual issue here. Um, if, if you have like your Bible, if you have like a hardcore Bible, um, hardcore, that's not hardcore, hard copy, um, Hopefully you don't have any hardcore. But um, if, you, if you have your Bible, and you, does anyone have their Bible, like a, the hard copy of it? Okay, what, is it, what does it say in the text when it gets to John 7.53? Yell it out to me. It, that, that's what I'm looking for. The earliest manuscripts do not include this text. Okay, virtually any Bible you read will have either it will it, it'll do the font smaller in that section, or it'll bracket it, or it'll have an editor's note. Like the editors always let you know when there's some question about like okay, we either had a there's like difficulty in translating this, or with the thousands of ancient Greek copies of the texts, most like 95% of them say this, but then there's like some that were in Egypt and they had this word instead of that word, or this, you know, you know what I mean by that? That's, that's called a textual variant. There's like a variation in the, in the ancient text. This is, this is one of the most, um, I don't want to say hotly debated, but just a, a lot of ink has been spilled talking about this particular passage, because in the oldest Greek copies we have of John's gospel, the oldest ones, it's not there. It's not there. And so it's likely that either, I mean, again, there's tons of theories, everything from John might have included it later in like a later edition to the idea of, um, uh, okay, here's the, there's, there's a section of writings. They're called the um, agrafa. Um, if, if you sign your, your, your signature, you write your autograph, okay? Graphe just means to write. The agrafa is the non-written words of Jesus in the uh, Gospels. Meaning, um, if you open up the book of Luke, Luke says, uh, my dear Theophilus, this is the guy who probably paid him, commissioned him to write the, the text, and so he's kind of nodding to my, you know, my dear Theophilus. Um, I ex as many people, as many other people, he says, have, have taken up uh, an account to write the life of Jesus, so I too thought it was a good idea. So I went and I interviewed people, and I talked to people, and I, and I pulled all this data, eyewitness information, and I put it into this account. Um, <clears throat> there are other examples 
even in the New Testament, of words of Jesus that aren't in the Gospels, but that show up other places. You ever realize that? Uh, The book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, we read this. In everything I did, this is Paul writing, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself. And then he quotes, it is more blessed to, what? Give than receive. You all know that, right? That's found nowhere in the Gospels. The only place we have it is in the book of Acts. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians, there's another time where Paul says, as our Lord Jesus said, and then he quotes something. He's talking about something. They're not found in the Gospels. But see, the reality is you, you turn to the end of the Gospel of John, and John says, you know, he gets done with this whole story. Here, here's the Jesus story. And then he says, Jesus did many, many other things that are not recorded in here. And then he, he kind of, through hyperbole, says, I suppose if you were to write them down, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. <laughs> so people had experiences with Jesus, and these, these stories circulated widely and early, but these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, simply didn't, it wasn't germane to what they were doing in their particular writings. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So here's the question is, what most people believe, and if you want to talk about this more, come up afterwards and we'll, we'll kind of geek out on it. I love it or I'll give you an article, that sort of thing. But here's, here's my, uh, I would suggest, based on a lot of different reasons, that this account in this story, though not originally in the first edition of John, goes back to historical eyewitness account. For both internal textual reasons and external historical reasons, it's very well known from like the end of the first century, it's being communicated. It shows up in a lot of different quotes by the early church fathers. So it seems to be an authentic story, okay? But again, I, I just want to talk about this because I think it's good to address these kinds of issues when they come up in the text. Anyone else want to talk about textual criticism for the next 45 minutes? Okay, okay. Let's go on then here. But, but again, that's, that's my view, and if you want to talk more about it, we'd, we'd love to chat with you on that. So the woman caught in adultery. Here's the question that's asked of her, is where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, real quickly, a little bit of context getting into this particular passage. If you look back just a couple verses, what we find out is uh, that, in fact, I think this will be a slide on the screen up here. We read this. On the last day of the feast, we'll talk more about that in a second, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed this. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now the feast that is mentioned, this is, this is the feast of, feast of Sukkot. If you remember when we had uh, my friend Yonatan, our Israeli guide here a couple weeks ago, he talked about some of the feasts and festivals in Israel. This is a seven-day feast, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the, the Feast of Booths. It's reminiscent, calling back to the Israel's time of, of sojourning out in the desert when they had no homes. And so they make, during this time, they make these little shacks and kind of basically go, go out of their home and live in them to remember what's going on. It's a seven-day. Uh, this year it fell on, I think, like September, end of September. So we just passed it here a little while ago. Um, so Jesus is in attendance in Jerusalem. It's on, the, it's on the last climactic day 
of this festival, and he stands up and he makes this claim, and this claim is very bothersome to the religious leaders because it's, it's suspiciously close to, very, very close to, what God says about himself in Isaiah 55, about saying, those of you who are thirsty, come on, it's free. <laughs> and so he seems, again, he's attributing divine language to himself, very inappropriate for a mere human. And so John tells us that there are, there are two responses to his listeners of this, of his Jerusalem speech. The crowd, half of them are, are confused, half, and they're like divided. You know, some, yeah, I think so. This guy's doing miraculous works. How else do we explain that? They're having lots of debates among themselves. But the chief priests and the Pharisees are, are angered. And their anger is just continuing, continuing to, to boil over. And they actually send temple guards from the temple to, to go arrest him. And the temple guards get there. And there's so many people, such a crowd, he has such a following that we're told they don't do anything and they go back and they tell them and they say, well, we gave you one simple task, you know, arrest him. And, and their response is, no one's ever taught like him before. <laughs> and they're like, are you under a spell too? Like, what is wrong with you? And so um, it, it, it doesn't happen um, that they kind of all walk away, they're mad, everybody goes home, round one is over. That's what introduces us to, to this text here. And so overnight, Jesus' opponents have planned round two and it's a very astute trap. It's very, very interesting uh, when, when we drill down into it. So the minds of Jesus' opponents, uh, it's possible they're thinking, well, if the, if the temple authorities arrest him, he just gets more popular. If we can discredit him publicly, then he's humiliated and he loses the crowds because he, he doesn't, have the, doesn't have the shine. Um, according to Jewish law, the day, the day after a feast, so this is a seven-day feast, so this is like the eighth day. The day after a seven-day feast has to be treated as a Sabbath, even if it's not a Sabbath, okay? And what's, you guys probably know, what's the primary thing about how do you keep Sabbath? What is it that you abstain from? Yeah, work. You, you do not do any work at all. And, uh, and so Jesus returns uh, on this day. Crowd gathers uh, in good rabbinic style. He sits down. We do it opposite in the West. When you're going to teach, you stand up. <laughs> in the ancient Near East, when you're going to teach, you sit down. That's taking the form of a teacher. So he's affirming his authority to do that. And he begins to teach. And as he's in the middle of teaching, that's when they make their move. And so we read this in John chapter 7. Um, Actually, John chapter 8, verse 2, I'll start in. <clears throat> we read, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, he's speaking of the, the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question, uh, the author John tells us, uh, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, as soon as we read this story, the story, the, the inevitable question arises in our minds. Uh, I mean, first of all, how did, they, how did religious leaders catch her in the act? That's weird 
right? Like that's questionable right there without saying any more. Um, a second question, though, that, that comes to mind is um, adultery is really difficult to do alone, I've discovered, uh, as I've thought about things, I mean. Um, just to put any questions to rest. Um, it, but, but if she was caught in the act, they would have seen who? Yeah, the partner, this man who was there also, would have been identified. The book of Leviticus, the law they refer to is Leviticus 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 10, and it reads this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. They know this well, okay? But where's, where's the man? If, if the leaders are really that zealous about keeping Torah, right? If, if they're really serious about it, if this is really their, their intent about keeping it, why did they not arrest the man who they clearly would have been able to identify with there. Do you see, I mean, th th there are holes in the story. There's always holes in lies, right? These are becoming slowly apparent even as they're telling it. Now, what's being exposed is that just the day before, remember the one, the kind of the uh, attempt one, you know, trying to get him, we talked about just the day before, all the people who started kind of think like, maybe this Jesus guy's legit, you know? They said, you're cursed because you don't, you don't even know the law. And now they're violating the law in the name of enforcing the law. They're Because they're not holding to Leviticus what it says you have the man and the woman. So they're violating the law as a pretense, uh, or, or I should say, they're, they're holding to the law, trying to enforce it. That's the pretense. <clears throat> What's their real agenda? And so the fact that they brought the woman but not the male partner clearly indicates this is not about caring for Scripture. This is not about trying to keep Torah. It's about publicly humiliating Jesus. And, of course, the sad part is that the woman is just a prop. She's just a prop in this story, not cared about at all. How many times do we see people who, who have been hurt being used in order to go after some larger agenda, using victims who have already been hurt. Another factor that, that kind of plays into this story that, that's building the drama here is even where they are, there will be an uh, image of what the temple kind of would have looked like the, the temple court. Now, just to give you an idea, the temple court, the large area there, that's about 35 acres. It's, it's quite, quite large. And do you see the, um, the three sides? Okay, the side that's closest to us, that's the one I'm not talking about. <laughs> the, the other three sides have, um, it's called a cloister. It's like a walkway, the wall on one side, and then this row of, like a colonnade on the other side that takes you out. And, um, and so all three of the other sides have these cloisters, these, these walkways <coughs> covered. And then um, go ahead and go to the next image. It's kind of zoomed in. This is kind of the right side. Do you see that image on the top right side there? That would be the, the right side is the north, the top is the west. It would be the northwest corner of the temple. Um, this, is, this is a military fort. Herod the Great built this military fort because 
when is it that civil unrest typically would break out? You know, festivals, feasts, when you've got people that, who are from all over and they come for the seven day and the city's packed and people start talking about, man, we should have our own independence. You know, that's when civil unrest typically happens. And so he built this fort because it gave him access immediately to the temple, but it also gave him access to the top above where their archers could shoot down at the people if they need to. Interesting, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, um, wrote about that these soldiers, how they would engage on festival days. He, He said this, a Roman legion went several ways among the cloisters with their arms or bearing arms on the Jewish festivals in order to watch the people that they might not attempt to make any innovations. So this entire scene that's unfolding with Jesus, that's, that's, the, that's the intensity building. That's the awareness of, they're watching everything. And if anyone has a name of this person might be a revolutionary, their swords, I mean, are, they're literally watching everything going on here. And so the Pharisees don't ask Jesus a hypothetical. They get a tool, they find someone who can be used, and they bring her right to him. And again, as we read, they made her stand before the group. You think about the humiliation of that. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And then I think what's going on is the Pharisees in their minds think that Jesus has two options, right? Jesus can either say, yeah, stone her, right? problem. John just told us somewhere else in, in, in the book that the Romans had taken away the Jews' capacity to, um, for, for, for capital punishment. You can't, that's why when they have Jesus, they've got to take him to the Romans, you know what I mean? So they don't have the ability to just kill. And so, and even if Jesus just said, yeah, let's do it, it would cause an absolute uproar. I mean, he'd get arrested. So that's option one that they're thinking, okay, he's, he's in the horns of a dilemma, He can either do that, or of course another option that he has is, might might sound something like this. Let me read to you the words of Kenneth Bailey. Imagine if Jesus said something like this. Gentlemen, we know what the law of Moses requires, but the realities of the political world in which we live cannot be avoided. Just look around you. Yes, we long for a day of liberation from Rome after which we will be able to obey the laws of Moses in a strict fashion. But in the interim, we're obligated to be patient and make allowances. How would he be perceived by the crowds? Yeah, he's a coward. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't really care about the laws of Moses. He's, he's willing for those to bend. This isn't someone I want to follow, maybe even give my life up for. So in short, if he carries out the law of Moses, he'll be arrested. If, if he carries or, or opts for the, uh, for the other side, he'll be discredited. Hmm. <laughs> he's either discredited or he's arrested. Is he going to go with Moses or is he going to go with Rome? Either way he loses, his opponents win. So what does he do? Of course, this is one of the most scratch-your-head-at kind of thing. Verse 6, we read this. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Weird. (laughs) That's his answer. That doesn't seem that bright. Well, okay. 
uh, just in thinking a little bit about this, remember we said this is, this is the first day after the uh, seven-day feast has to be treated like a Sabbath, which, like we said, means refraining from work and that sort of thing. Interesting, the rabbis defined writing as work because they said when you write, you're making a permanent mark, like ink on a, on a, on a piece of paper. But then they did reason through like the Mishnah, which is their oral tradition, they said, but... I suppose if you write in the dust, the wind will come along and blow it away. So that's not considered work because there's no permanent thing left there. So what? Well, a couple things. Number one, by doing this, Jesus kind of makes it clear, I know not just scripture. I know the oral traditions. I'm not a country bumpkin. I know the, the conversations about the laws that... Are, are happening about Sabbath, and I am strictly holding to the law, even the ones you're talking about. But here's the big question is, what does he write, right? And again, no small amount of ink has been spilled on this. Like, people wonder all the time. There's tons of theories out there, and it's fun to, like, explore them. I could give you, like, 20 right now. Um, the answer is, I don't know. I have no idea what he wrote. But for the sake of enjoyment and fun so we don't have to stop the message right now. Let me, let, let me make an argument for one answer. No idea if this is true, okay? But it could be. It's actually, I think there's evidence in the text that this is very possible, <clears throat> possibly what he wrote. And if you want to write it down on your paper, here's what I would suggest is a very possibly what he wrote. Death kill her. Stone her with stones. Why is that? Well, because his immediate words presuppose that he just decreed capital punishment. The very next thing that he says assumes that he declared capital punishment. And remember, Jesus, did Jesus take the Old Testament law seriously? Not, not human law, not human tradition, he didn't. He said, I'll break that all the time. But God, remember he said things like not one jot or tittle? It, it's, he was very serious about it. So do you think he just contradicted that? I don't think so. I think maybe what he wrote in, maybe it was Leviticus 20.10, saying what, what should happen. So Jesus just wrote the judgment, but now here's the ingenious part of Jesus. Jesus now announces the method of execution. Verse 7. He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Ah, it's the method of execution that he employs in order to save her. See, mobs will do anything, won't they? I mean, we can just turn on our TVs and we can see things. When there are mobs of people, they, you know, in the aftermath of war, uh, when civil authority is undermined, when the mobs have overpowered the police, they will loot, they will destroy, they will kill, they will burn, they will do anything. Because when so many people are involved, there won't be, not one individual person will be responsible for it or will be arrested. So in mobs, 
individuals escape accountability for behavior, don't they? See, in this case, if everyone in the crowd stoned the woman, no one individual will bear the responsibility for it. So it's very likely that the mob might do something like that. But when Jesus says this, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone, he puts a name and a face on every single person in that crowd that day. Because see, after the Roman guards, let's say they were to start doing it, or let's just say that you know, they, you know, it creates this big fuss. After the Roman guards break it up, first question, they have, first question I ask my kids when they're fighting, oftentimes. Yeah, who started this, right? Who started it? Well, they're going to know. There's going to be a name and a face that's very well known. Of course, the second question they will ask is who ordered it? So do you, do you see what, what Jesus is, is doing here? Jesus is saying, gentlemen, I know you want me to go to jail, and I'm willing to do it. Which one of you will accompany me in my cell the first night? See, also remember, in the Middle East, this is an honor-shame culture, meaning every, every action and behavior you have reflects on your family with honor, or it reflects in shame. There's no real middle ground. Everything you do, your behavior, how you're perceived out in public, what you do, reflects upon your kinship, your family, your tribe, your group. Honor, shame. Honor is to be embraced. Shame is to be avoided at all costs. So here's another thing that's going on here. If a person steps out of the crowd, picks up a stone, what is he claiming about himself or herself? Sinless claiming to be sinless. This will be remembered by everyone there in the community. This is a community which embraces truths like Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Embraces truths like Ecclesiastes seven twenty. surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Is any religious leader really going to claim to be sinless? in this kind of culture. At this, verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time. It says the older ones first, Middle Eastern situation, and when you're in a difficult circumstance, you always look to the elder. So they look to the elder, and is he going to have the courage to, to actually uh, respond to Jesus' challenge? As the oldest walk away and then the young. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, here's our question for tonight. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. See, here's the key. Here's, here's what I think this whole story is leading up to. Here's, here's where I went this week as I was reading over and meditating on and thinking about this, that a few minutes earlier, a few minutes earlier, this terrified woman, what did she expect? Yeah, she expected brutal treatment, right? There was anger and hatred like in her direction. She expected a painful death. And suddenly, the anger and the disgust that the Pharisees had toward her, where is it now? It's been redirected toward Jesus. 
their anger we read again and again, it just keeps boiling and it keeps boiling. And now they're plan- we're going to murder him. Oh, that's what they were going to do to her. All of that through Jesus' actions somehow got transferred over to him. And they're now completely focused on Jesus rather than her. At great cost, at great cost, Jesus has, has shifted their hostility from her to himself, and he doesn't even know her name. <laughs> See, a famous servant song in Isaiah affirms this, Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of this coming king, this Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. See, she knows that Jesus has humiliated them. Shame, honor, shame, culture, you know that. He has humiliated them on their own turf, and they will be, they will be back but with a bigger stick. <laughs> and she sees that this Jesus is in the process of getting hurt because of what he was doing for her. Like, she's got to be aware of that. She has to know this is going to come back on him, not on me. See, she is the recipient of a costly demonstration of completely unexpected love that literally saves her life. Jesus demonstrates that that life-changing power of costly love, that that costly love has the ability to literally change your life is what she was beginning to see. And so this this scene, I think, provides an insight into even how Jesus understood the significance of his own suffering. See, a a core aspect of the turn of the kaleidoscope, you know, the meaning of the atonement, part of it's being revealed even here in this particular text. And in his final words to her, to the woman, Jesus neither condemns her nor overlooks what is a really self-destructive lifestyle. He, he, he walks a razor's edge between the two when he says this, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, looking at the larger picture, Jesus accepts the sexual codes of the Old Testament, of Leviticus 20.10, he accepts them. He absolutely accepts them of the Old Testament tradition, but he, he doesn't just remove the penalty, he redirects it toward himself. He redirects the penalty to himself. Kenneth Bailey, another author, um, writes this. They, speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, worked with the all-too-familiar combination of sex, a woman, sin, public humiliation, and a double standard. They did not bring in a murderer or a thief, but a woman caught in adultery. The man was allowed to disappear. There was, no ev- there was no evident effort to help her, only to use her and then to kill her. Her public hu- humiliation was irrelevant. And what, at whatever cost, at whatever cost, Jesus stands in firm opposition to all of this. Man, you know, any, anytime you hear people talk about, you know, that the, the low view of women within the Christian faith, you can't say that when you look at Jesus. 
You can't say that at all when you look at Jesus. So think, think about this. Jesus presents a call for reformation for both sides. He doesn't let anyone off the hook in what's going on here. He, he challenges the consciences of the accusers, of the people with potential stones in their hands. But he doesn't romanticize the woman and her situation. Rather, he, he leaves her with a charge to reform her lifestyle, to turn away from what she has been doing. In short, he tells the woman and the men, you're both wrong. You've both sinned. Both of you are in need of changing your ways. And as is the case with like almost every Jesus story, I love it and I, and I hate it. <laughs> At the end of almost every Jesus story, the ending is missing. Darn it. <laughs> what you do? What happened? You're like, right? Like, you always want to know that stuff. Why is, it, why is it always missing? How did the woman respond? Because see, she knows that Jesus will suffer for, for what he did to help her. But, but the question that I had in my mind the whole, all week long was, will the knowledge of, of the costly price that, that he paid for her salvation, her life, Will it become a life-changing force in her life? Man, I want to know that. Um, and see, I would suggest this woman got a, if, again, don't know her story. Man, I wish I did. Um, I wonder if she, she definitely would have heard about this Jesus being crucified. Oh, I remember that guy. That guy saved me once before. I would suggest that she's being given a precursor of the atonement that no one understood until later her story was told. She's getting a turn of the, of the, of the kaleidoscope on what Jesus, how Jesus' life connects with her sin and her life. And I think the, there's, a, there's a powerful stirring for me, the reader, for you, the reader, finish the story. Finish, finish the play. You're challenged, I think, with this response. And as we go into communion, I think this is the kind of thing I want us to go into it with in our minds is reflect on how the woman in the story might have responded. But in the process, think deeply about your own response to the costly love of God through, through the cross for you and for me. And it's not in a condemning way. It's not in a feel bad way. It's in a look how much you're loved. We'll hold nothing back, no cost. That, that song that we sung and that we're gonna sing here too is this idea of, man, do I think about, when I think about what God has done, what does that do? Is that life transforming in your heart? 